This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. The following content may contain strong language. Hello, this is the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast with me, Simon Stevens. The plays of Tanika Gupta are as defined by a vitality and spirit of intelligent transgression as much as they are a piercing observation of the mores and tropes of the worlds that surround her. Born in 1963 in Chiswick, she studied history at Oxford University before working in a women's shelter in Manchester and as a community worker in Islington. Throughout her childhood, her university and working life, she continued to write. It was in 1996 when her play Skeleton was commissioned by the Soho Theatre Company that she was able to commit to turning writing into her career. The following 20 years has seen a prolific explosion of work. She's written or adapted over 20 plays and seen those plays staged in all of the major theatres in the United Kingdom. The National Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Young Vic, Hampstead Theatre, Birmingham Rep and Sheffield Crucible amongst others. Her East End Bollywood musical play Wah Wah Girls played at Sadler's Wells. This year she worked with the New Globe artistic director Emma Rice as dramaturg on A Midsummer Night's Dream. She's written consistently for television and taught playwriting throughout the world. Her 2006 play Sugar Mummies opened here at the Royal Court, a provocative and searching exploration of female sex tourism in the Caribbean. It is a play defined, I would argue, by three characteristics that return to her work. By examining the subculture of wealthy white women who toured developing economies in search of sex in exchange for financial favour, it subverted conventional narrative, put female characters in the centre of the stage, and interrogated the extent to which identity is defined by or in defiance of race and ethnicity. She's a writer with a wily eye for bullshit and wily ear for dialogue who has dramatised England for a generation. Tanika Gupta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> um, I want to start, if I can, by talking of that moment in 1996 where you decided to kind of like right full-time when you got the commission from the Soho Theatre Company. Is the detail of that right? What what happened? Tell us, yeah, the, detail, tell us the story it, the, of that. It's not the whole detail. Because Great, actually well, tell I us was, the whole detail. I was actually writing long before that yeah. for television, right. uh, for radio, right. but couldn't get into stage at all. Right. So I'd written a stage play, but nobody was interested in it. So I, I literally started writing in radio drama, and then I went into Grange Hill. So I right. wrote for Grange Hill for years. So the first drama yeah. you wrote, Seriously, was yeah. radio drama. Yeah, it was radio yeah. drama. So I entered this thing called the... Um, it was a competition called the Young Playwrights Festival. And it was one of those weird times where my father had had just passed away mm. and I was pregnant with my first child and I'd sent in this script. And so all within the same six months of a child being born, a father dying, I had my first um, radio play produced. So it kind of felt like, oh, maybe I should do this, actually. <laughs> this <laughs> seems like a good idea. How, were you writing, um, and was it writing for radio and television that allowed you to stop the community work, or did you yeah. continue? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I got yeah. a commission with David Putnam at the time right. to write a film version of A Suitable Boy by Vikram Seth, yeah. which actually never got made. Uh-huh. But um, Those unproduced it, screenplays can yeah. 
pay pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> so it was enough for me to be able to give up and yeah. pay a childminder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, uh, that that duality of birth, death, and creativity yeah. is really fascinating. Yeah, how absolutely. often that occurs in writers' yeah. lives. It's yeah. fascinating to me how many writers' careers, including my own, mm. are released by the death of a father. I know. It's really it's extraordinary. But I remember having getting my first job as a community worker and my father being really upset and saying, but I thought you wanted to write. I thought you were going to be a writer. And I said, yeah, but I need to earn a living, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I could do that. Because he was a singer, right? He was a singer yeah. and my mum was an Indian dancer. So, so, so we grew up in this very arty-farty, Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore, obsessed household and of course Tagore was the is the Indian national poet right and he's he's our Shakespeare basically so he wrote both the Indian national anthem and the Bangladeshi national anthem so we so that's that that was the household I grew up in in North London in Hastings oh right and then in then in North London right so we only we lived a very Bengali um lifestyle at home Mm. only spoke Bengali at home we weren't allowed to speak any English and you can imagine as a child when you're growing up in that, it's so, you think, God, let me out of here. I don't want to ever hear about Tagore ever again in my life. <laughs> Stop reciting his poetry at me. How long, did, and, and is, that, is, that, uh, is that an impulse that you've shaken? Have you returned to him as a poet? Or, oh, yeah, or, no, it, totally. He's completely inside me. I can't get rid of right. him. I mean, interesting, I went to Chile recently, yeah. went to Pablo Neruda's house, and the first oh. poem I saw on the wall was Pablo Neruda's um, interpretation of Tagore's poem, The Gardener. I've come all the way to South America, I can't get away from him. And of course, they've all heard of him there. Bizarrely. In what, what, why? Why is that? Because he went to Argentina and he wrote songs. I think he fell in love with an Argentinian woman. Mm -hmm. But so so they, and and his poetry was very appreciated there. It's been translated beautifully into Spanish, apparently. Mm. The- um, Go figure. (laughs) Of all the writers that I've met, I think you're the first whose parents not only encouraged them to write, but assumed they would be a writer. Yeah, was yeah. writing something that you've always done yeah, in yeah. childhood? Did you Absolutely. start writing? Before? I often make the same observation uh, that people listening to this podcast will now have heard me made like loads of times, um, that I think writers come to writing for theatre from one of two routes. They either start off as an actor and struggling to get themselves a role mm, and so they mm. try and write one or they're writers who stumble into theatre. Mm. Would either of those describe your path into starting to write for theatre? Well, I think I always wanted to write for theatre because, of course, my parents were actors and did all this Tagore drama. So I so, always I grew up right. around it, but I, I literally couldn't get uh, anyone to read my plays in the early days. And so I think that, for me, it was very much about... I always wrote right from the age of... I think I was one of the first people in my class to read and write. Right, So from primary school. Yeah, age. so... Yeah. And, of course, we come from a very big storytelling background, so yeah. my father would tell us stories about Mahabharata and the Ramayana. So it was, yeah. all, it was all very oral storytelling tradition, mm. which I guess is quite... I guess it's quite Eastern African, I suppose. Yeah. So that... The, the sto- it's, it's very much about the storytelling that... Um, and so, unlike a lot of people who write early, yeah, uh, in a, from a Western cultural mm. perspective, perhaps the gesture of writing is equated with reading rather than listening mm. to language. Mm. You, for you, gesture of writing was a, was was something that was spoken rather than something that was yeah. read. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. for example, Dad would take us to school in the morning, telling us some story or other, wow. and uh, if 
if he hadn't finished the story by the time we got to the school, we'd have to sit in the car and wait until he finished the story. And often the school bell had gone, everybody had gone in, and we were still sat, and me and my brother were still sat in the car, waiting and waiting for him to finish. It was a nightmare. <laughs> were you at school in Chiswick or at school in Hastings? No, I went to school in... Um, uh, so we we were young kids. In, I'd say we, me and my brother, we were young yeah. kids in Hastings, and then yeah. moved back up to London. So we basically lived in North London, and still live in North London. Yeah. And so I went to school there. I went to a state school, and my brother was sent to a private school. Why? Well, there you go. <laughs> there's there's the thing, and uh, and then I think I got one of those assisted places schemes, and I went to the private school for my A levels. Is that? A, 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 I don't know if they do. I that mean, anymore. I don't want to. I don't, I've not been asking people personal yeah. questions, but it seems more than a personal question. That is, was we, well, my mum and dad say it's because I was so clever that they didn't right. need to send me right. to a proper school right. or a private school, rather. Yeah. And um, I clearly, obviously, think it's because of you know inbred sexism. Um, but and did you at the time? I did, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. yeah. But my brother is now a high court judge. <laughs> <laughs> so there <Okay>. you go. <laughs> you only made it to be kind of an yeah. award-winning playwright. You must be a massive disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, uh, your family's involvement in Tagore's theatre, when yeah. you say they acted in his plays, where were they doing that? Where were they performing? So they, they used to get in a bus in the summer with all... I mean, we're talking the 1960s when everyone was very yeah. young. So they would have been in their 20s yeah. then. And they... Uh, Everybody was young in their 60s. Yeah. Even their grandparents were young. <laughs> I know. And yeah. they, they, they had all these other students with doctors, you know, right. medical students yeah. or whatever. And they used to get in a minibus and travel around the European continent uh, performing these Indian Tagore dance dramas. And I remember wow. going to places like Nuremberg and Aus- you know Austria and and Netherlands, and people used to literally come up and do that, uh, sort of like try and see if our skin colour would come off. Try and wipe the colour away <laughs> from your skin, <laughs> or take pictures of my mum in a sari. My it's goodness. extraordinary, actually. I don't even know why my parents were... I don't know what my parents were doing in Nuremberg, but they seemed to uh, perform there and go, go down very well. Twenty years after the trials. I know. Is <laughs> Gosh. I do remember us not being allowed into a pub one on one of those, you know sort of pubs that they have in Nuremberg and yeah. my dad causing an absolute raucous. The, um, but it was pr- predominantly Europe. It wasn't just England that you that they were They did. They, no, they, we did perform in England. They're still yeah. going. The Tagorians mm. are still going. In fact, I'm going on Thursday to talk to some symposium. My mum is still all right. Is she's she still, still performing? No, she doesn't perform anymore. Right. No, wow. <laughs> we should put some link on the website to where people can go and see. <laughs> <laughs> the, did you... Was that... So, you know... That would be the first time you went to the theatre, I'm assuming. Yes, and yeah. I remember seeing Brecht in Bengali, you know, the uh, Galileo, seeing it in Bengali before I ever saw it in English. So, Were they, Did they perform yeah, Tagore's yeah, translations yeah, of Brecht? Yeah, yeah wow. absolutely. So, so, it's, so it's kind of in the... It was always in the air, it was always in the mix. So I, I was very fortunate in that I wasn't like... There were a lot of Asian girls in my class who were absolutely drummed to be doctor, lawyer or accountant. Right. And I had the opposite, which right. was, you know, please don't become a Dr. Laura accountant. <laughs> he, Fortunately, um, my brother became one instead. <laughs> <laughs> when I first started working as uh, a resident dramatist at the Royal Court, I remember Ian Rickson, the then artistic director, 
say, describing the National Theatre is a bit cheeky. Sorry, Ian, if, you, if this ever goes out, <laughs> which it will, so just sorry. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the, he said that the National Theatre was Cambridge on, on Thames. Oh. Uh, and I remember thinking, yeah, but the Royal Court is like Oxford in Square. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> because, so you went to Oxford in, 90, in the early 80s. Yes. Ramin Gray was there, Katie Mitchell, James McDonald, yeah. Graham Wybra, were, were they all peers of yours? Or? I don't remember them at no. all. I, 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 I knew all the pol politicians for some reason. Right. Boris Johnson was there. I remember regularly throwing <laughs> eggs at him. <laughs> And I, I, honestly, well, that was, I mean, surely he wasn't the mayor then. Was no, that, but was he that was, a Bullingdon but club? He was, yeah, he was, he was up to no good even in those days. Really? So I think he was the president of the union or something like that. <laughs> this is when Margaret Thatcher came for an honorary degree and I think he was involved in... Giving in her a, the honorary I don't degree. know what he did, but I, all I remember is throwing eggs at him and I can't exactly remember exactly what it was about. But And, and people like Miliband, David Miliband. Yeah. Did but you I enjoy Oxford? I didn't really enjoy being there no yeah. I felt really out you know sort of fish out of water and I ended up just hanging out with non-university people in fact right so that saved my life and getting involved in politics because of course at the time it was free Nelson Mandela it was yeah. Green and Common was down the road so actually that that was much more interesting to me it was a vital um, poli yeah minor strike yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so but all those old characters keep coming back up again now all the people that I fought with in those days or threw eggs at or argued 2016 has a, it seems to have a rich 80s throwback <laughs> feel. Yes. Theresa May recreating the kind yeah. of Thatcher figure, Jeremy Corbyn as Michael Foote. Yeah. Kind of That's so true. <laughs> hey, there's a play in there. <laughs> Were you involved in the theatre at university no, at all? No, not at all. No, so no. so it was I, a separate if, thing. But yeah. to be honest, in those days, I was the—I uh, think there was me and there was another Asian woman in the whole in right. my year. There, there really weren't any of us there, and so we felt very uh, marginalised. There were lots of uh, black and Asian people from overseas, so overseas students, but there weren't any British ones. Yeah. So I think I tried to get in once and got, you know, basically rejected because yeah. they didn't, yeah. didn't really know what to do with me, so I just kind of... <laughs> Did you ever thought, act? In any context, did you perform uh, in the set with, with yeah, your parents? I performed at school, yeah, and I danced, yeah, when I was a kid. Did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. With, and with the in the Tagoreans, yeah, yeah. I was, and I went off to India for de-anglicisation process to learn Indian dancing. So I trained in Indian <laughs> classical dance and song, wow. but uh, then as soon as I got away from home, I dropped it all and became a writer. <laughs> Something I've read. I mean, in in preparation for this, reading a few interviews with you. There's a clarity with which you speak about rejecting the adjective Asian as an mm. Asian writer mm. because you're just a writer. Yeah. You know, in the way that nobody ever describes me as a... They might describe me as a Stockport writer, yeah. but never as, like, a white writer. Yeah, yeah. Or an English writer or an yeah. atheist writer. or but, um, but nevertheless, despite this kind of insistent rejection, which I mm. completely sympathise with... Yeah. Uh, you know, you talk as well equally eloquently about your sense of self as a British Asian person. And Oxford in 1983, yeah. I imagine now there's probably a stronger British Asian population there. Yeah, but, I'm sure there is, yeah. But you felt that sense of being marginalised yeah, or being defined totally, by totally. an ethnicity which you hadn't created. or Yeah, you, you know, it's, it's just, it's, yeah. You know. and it was very different from London, of course, because it, yeah. it, coming from London where it was even then so multicultural... Yeah. Suddenly going to this incredibly blue stocking white Oxford. Right. But the best thing about Oxford is I met my husband there. That's a pretty good yeah. thing for any experience. And I'm still with to him. To meet God our spouses. How, I'm still with him. <laughs> <laughs> 33 years. <laughs> 
33 years is pretty good going. <laughs> the, and you went to Manchester afterwards, is that right? Yeah, I went to run a women's refuge in Manchester. I mean, that's a really... I mean, all right, you're telling your dad you need to pay the rent. <laughs> but I don't imagine, of all the jobs you could have taken, that running a women's refuge in Manchester, yeah, Manchester was, was the most lucrative. No, I was very young. I wanted to be on the front line. Did you? Fighting the good fight and working... Because the refuge that I worked with was actually... It wasn't. It was for um, children, so it was for young girls oh, no. who ran away from home, so who were on care orders, so fourteen-year-olds, and they came from all over the place, like Accrington, Batley, Burnley, Blackburn, you know, and well, go to Victoria Station and pick them up, and you know, it was quite extraordinary. They 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 would go to Manchester as a kind of magnet for the dispossessed. Yeah, because That's, there was a refuge there that was yeah. specifically for them, so right. they would get in touch with uh, social services, and social services put in touch with us, and it was. It was a, an amazing thing to do for a couple of years, actually. Yeah. Why was it amazing? Just because you met these amazing young women who were just sort of like literally just running screaming out of their communities. And it, it, it's, it's not the same as just get running away from a husband. It was running away from the whole community because once you'd left your family, you couldn't, you couldn't go back to that community. It wasn't like you could move down the road. Mm. You, had the, you know, a lot of it was about finding a new identity, changing their names, change, you know, everything. And some of them, literally, they would run away because they'd had an argument with their parents, and you go, actually, your parents were right, I think you need to go <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to cut my hair, and they wouldn't let me. <laughs> well, uh, well, actually... <laughs> That's not a reason no, no, to run away from <laughs> You've got really yeah. nice hair. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but that's what they would all do. They'd all come with this incredibly long black hair. And wow. the first thing they did was a, it was like a rite of passage, was cut their hair off. And we would all be going, don't cut your hair, don't get... Oh, you cut your hair. Man. How long were you there for? I was there for three years. And then I just thought, I don't really want to do this anymore. Were you writing all the time? Uh, yeah. In fact, I wrote a film about that experience and it was made into a screenplay for BBC called Flight and I think it won lots of awards but this is really back in the day you know Mira Sial was a teenager sort of thing and uh, I think everybody was in it that's like all the goodness gracious me team were in it and it was one of the you know in the old days when when the BBC used to make one hour or 90 minute screenplays yeah it was one of those like a play for today type thing 94, 95 something like that right wow And drawing from those experiences. Yeah, yeah. It's an important thing for you in your writing is drawing from the worlds that you've seen. Is that fair or...? Can't help it, can you? (laughs) I don't... See, I don't know if I do. Oh, right, okay. You're much more creative than me then. (laughs) I don't know about being more creative. I think it's just differently creative. Mm. It's not not one's more than the other, but it's just interesting to me as a writer that you do, that you, you are writing about those kids and writing about... Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I make it up a lot as well. But I mean, I think it, that was one of my very early pieces of work. Yeah. And I, I just felt it was such an amazing world that I wanted to write about. Not sure I would do the same now. And you carried on the community work in, in, when you came back back to London. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I worked for Islington Council. And what they, were you doing? They had, <laughs> I love the way you said Islington Council. They had a really good maternity pay package. Great. So... <laughs> I right. quickly had two children, and I worked with uh, as a community worker. How old um, were your children when when you came down to Islington? Uh, well, they when when I left, I mean, basically, I had children when I was there. Well, in Islington, yeah, yes, right? Yeah. Okay. yeah, you you had children yeah, you, because they had such yeah. good maternity pay. <laughs> well, I can have, and that's literally when I first started writing um, radio. It's really inspiring because a lot of. Uh, 
people and often women, occasionally men, but more often women are anxious about the impact of becoming a parent on their writing. Yeah. So it's inspiring to me that actually the gesture of becoming a parent engendered yeah. writing rather than re- restricted it. Is that fair? I mean, did it? Or, or was it nightmare kind of juggling child rearing and writing? It was. It was it, it's always a nightmare having children. Yeah. <laughs> nobody, no, I would totally nobody, agree with nobody, that. Nobody I would totally agree with that. But I was quite lucky in that I had, uh, I had my mum was around. And right. uh, my husband's parents were around, and I have, and I had a brother who was sort of around, so there was always someone to kind of take care of the kids when I needed to go to the theatre. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. So and and also obviously the bloke's not bad either. So so between us all, we managed we managed in those early years. Yeah. And actually, I think it was I, I think those are probably my most productive years. Really? I think probably I was you know I was writing Brecht in the morning and. Grenchill in the afternoon and you know a new commission from National Theatre in the evening and yeah. I couldn't possibly do that now yeah I could barely do one <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's that thing of youthful vigour and you know mm. energy really why did you want to start writing for radio are you a fan of radio drama? I, um, I, I realised I said that. They were like, why radio? <laughs> but uh, They were running a competition. Right. And they had this, uh, they had this um, uh, what do they call it, um, black section. So they were trying to encourage black and Asian writers. Yeah. And I was part of this. I mean, only could this be named in the 80s. It was called the Asian Women Writers Collective. So I was part <laughs> And they pushed me forward and said, oh, you, you can't really write prose. Why don't you try this? And they shoved me towards this uh, workshop. Where was that? Was that in Manchester? No, that was in the BBC in London. Oh, right. No, yeah. but where where were you then? The Asian Women Writers Collective was in London and in Manchester. Right, yeah. OK. Had yeah. <laughs> multi-armed yeah. organisation. I mean, you know, people like Mira were there, was yeah. there and Rahila Gupta and all these yeah, people great. that have actually now gone on to ca- carry on writing. Yeah. And so, uh, and so it was the it was a consequence of the kind of in- industry structures yeah. that led you to writing for radio. Yeah, I mean, do you enjoy writing for radio. I love it. Yeah, I still and do you write. still do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I've just handed something in. Yeah, and what um, do you enjoy about it? You can be anywhere you want in the world. You don't have to worry about budgets. You can be on the moon. Mm. You can mess with structure and voices and mon- internal monologues. Nobody tells you off. <laughs> so it's just you know it's almost like film, but on with sound. It's right. like you're creating pictures yeah. with sound. And I think there are a lot of writers who actually make a living out of writing for radio. Um, yeah. And it's... I think the people that work in radio, actually, most of them come from theatre. Yeah. So, actually, they're very good at working with writers, unlike television, Yes. I think. Yeah. You're writing Grange Hill as well at the same time. Yeah. I loved I loved Grange Hill. And, again, it was... Uh, you know, my um, first script editor was Anthony Minghella. <laughs> Oh my Although he left quite soon, I don't know what he went off to do. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd heard of him as script editor on the celebrated Grinchill yes. script editor. <laughs> I think he kept that bit quiet. <laughs> but it was great. What was good you, about it? Because you actually got to work with the kids. So it wasn't just great. that you wrote a script and then they did it like they do in telly now. Yeah. You you actually workshopped the script with the actors who were in the show. Brilliant. Which is fantastic. Because they'd often go, we don't say that. Oh, Miss, really? we don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> How many episodes did you do? I can't remember. But eight several. Eight, okay. something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and then it's I read... such an important drama. It was great. In, in Britain's sense of self. Yeah. Like an important drama for me when I was growing up, there was an awareness that when Grange Hill came on, when I was like seven, I'm not saying that you wrote the episodes that I watched as a seven-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Zamo and Zamo, you know, yes, Zamo yeah. on drugs. Yes, but I remember the other day I was talking to Kerry Michael at the Theatre Royal Stratford East and he mm. went very quiet and he said, you wrote one of the episodes I was in. Oh, man. <laughs> I went, I'm not that much older than you, Kerry, surely. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, but it was serious, actor, it, it was serious was it. drama. It was serious yeah. drama and it was like one of the first introductions to serious yeah. drama for, mm. for children in this country, yeah. I think. yeah. Which is that there's a great um, spirit of democracy, I think, in a lot of your mm. work, that 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 plays are things which are people are meant to enjoy, yeah. and, and you can be searching and you can be political, but fundamentally you shouldn't alienate or exclude. I wonder how much of that comes from like that grounding on Grain Chill and radio drama, or maybe that's completely uh, um, speculative on my behalf. I don't know, actually. I can't give you an answer for that. I mean, I do... Somebody was saying to me the other day, you're quite a feel-good writer, aren't you? <laughs> Which I thought, oh, I'm not sure I like that description. But I think I do like to entertain an audience. So, yeah. for example, working with Emma Rice yeah. was quite astonishing because there's a woman who likes to entertain an audience even more than I do. So, so in a sense, that was... I was going, do you think we need these puppets in the scene again? <laughs> <laughs> Really, does she need to swing down from from the rafters? I wouldn't quite say like... it was feel good. I'd never. I wouldn't use feel good, but I think I think it's democratic. Yeah. I think there are some playwrights who I really love as well. Yeah. Whose plays are kind of deliberately alienating and difficult. Like oh. you go and see a Howard Barker play, and I love Howard Barker. Yeah, absolutely. But he's yeah. not in. I can't imagine Howard Barker writing for Grange Hill, <laughs> or at least not very successfully. <laughs> The um, so that impulse that that you include people yeah. and that we all have the capacity to be transported by story yeah. is quite seems quite present in your work. The but so why theatre? Given that, given that you're writing for radio, you're writing for Grange Hill, you've got millions of people watching kids dramas. Why were you interested in writing a play for the Soho Theatre that has what well, two hundred <laughs> seats or whatever? Or <laughs> actually, it started before then because yeah. I I wanted to write for theatre. Mm. Um, why? And that's where I because I saw my parents in these theatrical events right. all the time. So for me, that's what writing drama was about. It wasn't really about television. So I was always trying to get to that place. Couldn't get a break. And then I wrote this play. I'd written this play, which was about, you know, I'm sure everyone's heard this story about my great uncle who was hanged by the British in 1930. People listening won't have done. You should tell us as, <laughs> so though, we, the, the as story, though we haven't gone. So the story goes, great uncle, so my grandfather's younger brother in 1930 was 19 years old and he broke into what was called Writer's Building, which is in Calcutta, which is the headquarters of the British Raj. And with two of his friends, he shot and he killed the Inspector General of the prisons, who he thought was responsible for the torture of political prisoners. They then ran around the building, shooting at officers, and then they locked themselves in a room and they all shot themselves. And my great uncle put the gun in his mouth and the bullet got stuck here. And when you say didn't here, kill just because him. people are listening, he got Did, stuck in the back of his neck. Sorry, back of yeah, just by the back of his ear. Yeah. And um, he survived. So they operated on him, and then they did a big court trial, and then six months later they hanged him. But in the six months that he was in jail, he wrote the most beautiful letters to his family, which I had, which I was given. And half of them were in English and half of them in Bengali. So I wrote this play, you know, as you do when you first start writing, I wrote a play about him. And 
I sent it to a friend of mine who then sent it to this very young, dynamic new director who was, I don't know, 15 or something. Mm -hmm. and, it and that was Indy Rubasingham. And she, <laughs> she read it. She read it and she said, let's do it. Let's go to the National Theatre Studio. So we actually workshopped it at the National Theatre Studio. You know, they did this thing where, I don't know if they still do it for six weeks, they workshop something and then yeah. they present it to a very yeah. small audience. I and they do, yeah. Graham Wybrow was yeah, there. And, right. Uh, I don't know. There were all sorts of people that I didn't, I didn't know who the hell they were. They were all the big wigs of the theatre. What year was this? What? 95, 96. Right. Yeah. But it was, uh, Paul Syrett was there mm. from the Soho and he saw it and commissioned me and that's where Skeleton yeah. came into Soho. But that play never got on and in fact when I look back on it now I read the play and I think gosh it was really expositional it was you know highly melodramatic so I've been trying to rewrite that play for years trying to get it on because I actually think it's still very relevant because the to... fundamental story remains mm. astonishing and 25 years later I've just discovered it's going to be put on so it's like that's how long it's taken to get that play on <laughs> but it's been to the wow. national it's been you know it's been everywhere how I mean it was turned down by Nick Heitner as being not relevant or something and it have you it was, continued yeah. to rewrite it over the yeah, 25 yeah, years yeah to try and kind of as i've got better as a writer as well yeah of course and i've yeah. messed with form and structure yeah. and characters and and then i finally managed to kind of crack it what an amazing thing to have yeah. started your career and then to yeah with, with that with that story yeah and i know how long it's Can we ask where it's going to be? Because by this well, time we broadcast these, it might be publicity. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I saw about these podcasts is they're not to publicise plays, but yeah. this might end up accidentally publicising your new play. Yeah. Well, all, all I know is that Roxana's directing, Roxana Silver Great. at Birmingham Rep, and I think it's going to be in co-production with The Globe, but it, you know, by the time oh, it glorious. comes out, it might be somewhere else. Oh, glorious. Oh, yeah. that's really... I want to yeah. give you a big congratulatory Thank hug. You. <laughs> I, I keep shoving it back story. in the drawer. My husband keeps going. You really must write that play. <laughs> Shut up. The um, um, well, the one um, I'm interested in the way in which, in your own work, to various degrees, and certainly your adaptations. Just to, I'm kind of going back a little yeah. bit. So forgive me on that. I wanted to ask you this anyway. I did a history degree too, and I'm interested in what the study of history gave you as a dramatist, specifically, perhaps as a playwright, but in any form. Do you ever think about? Um, or just answer the question, how did studying history inform your writing? Well, that's an interesting question because I think actually studying it at university put me off history. Right. I loved history, I always loved history. Mm. It was my favourite subject, my best subject, and I, they killed it. <laughs> they killed right. it for me at university. Yeah. And it's only years later when you get to writing that you suddenly think, oh, why do I like sitting in libraries so much looking things up and yeah. getting so obsessed with something that happened 100 years ago or even 10 years ago? Yeah. And actually there is a love of history and I think that's part of the love of stories as yes. well. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. But also about rewriting history so that, for example, the play that I wrote for the RSC, The Empress, was literally all about trying to rewrite history in terms of there were British Asians hanging around Victorian London. Right. Mahatma Gandhi was running around London, yeah. you know, in 1860-whatever it was. Yeah. So it, it's not, you know, when you watch on the telly, Dickensian or whatever it's called, they're all white. But actually, there were a lot of, lot of freed slaves, a lot of yeah. um, Asian businessmen yeah. and, and paupers and sailors, and they were all hanging around Tilbury Docks and... Hence, we, that's why so, there's so many Asians living there now. Mm. So there's a long history, and that, that sort of thing was quite interesting, going back 
to the library and finding letters from Queen Victoria to her Indian manservant wow. in Hindi, you know, all that kind of stuff. She'd actually she was learned, writing in Hindi? Yeah, she'd learned Hindi because she'd you know, basically fallen big time for her Indian manservant towards the end of her life. She liked her servants, didn't she? She did. She liked her... <laughs> She liked a dusky, dusky warrior, as they say. <laughs> it's not so much rewriting history. I guess it is. It's rewriting uh, the telling of history. It's not. It's yeah, not. No, it's no, not reinventing absolutely. the past. No. But it's rewriting the story. Yes. Yes. To reclaim yeah. the truth of yeah, it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's been that's been huge fun actually. That's and and similar gestures in your plays is an attempt to tell the truth about what the world is actually like. Yeah. Yeah. To I mean, tell I, the story as opposed to retell the history. To retell yeah. the story. Yeah. But I also think there's this. There, there is a polarisation in our theatre, isn't yeah, there? I mean, on. you get white plays, you get black plays, you get Asian plays. And if you put, put them all together in a play, everyone gets very confused. Yeah. <laughs> and you think, but look at the world that we live in, you know, look at our yeah. friends, look at our families. You mm. know, I mean, it's it's extraordinary that I... Because, you know, my three children are all mixed race and all a lot of their friends are all mixed race as well. And I very rarely see that um, actually uh, reflected on the stage or yes. on the telly and it's you know there was East is East which was really interesting but that's going back well, how many yeah, years is that 20 years, years? Yeah. Hanif Qureshi even yeah. further back why do you think that is <laughs> well I think it's very Eurocentric <laughs> theatre culture basically yeah um you know, I, I often go in for meetings with people who talk to me a lot about diversity and it's very boring. You kind of go, why are you telling me about diversity? I'm sitting here, I'm diverse, you know. Because I just <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about my plays. Don't tell me about all the stuff you're doing. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and it's also that thing about, like, for example, at the National Theatre recently, yeah. I'm going to name names, but no, there do. were two plays at on... At least seven people will be <laughs> listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> there were two plays on there. One was Dara, uh, mm. written by Tanya Ronda, and the other one was... Um, Beautiful Forevers by David Hare, both set in India uh, in the past yeah. or in the future, in the, in the present. Both written by white writers, but with a huge Asian cast. So all the Asian actors were like running around absolutely delighted because, you know, they were in the National and the National were delighted to have them because they had their diversity boxes ticked. But my question is, who's holding the bloody pen? <laughs> who's writing those stories? And inevitably, I'm not saying that we should only write from our own culture at all, because I don't do that myself. But inevitably, there will be, if you've got two plays on at the national that are, uh, from that from that area of the world, you should at least have one that's written by an Asian writer. It's an advocacy of positive discrimination yeah. in that sense. Is that mm. yeah? Because you because yeah. oh, uh, it's a problematic area because I well, I always argue that I should be able to write about anything, yeah. about any culture, about anyone. But then you know a white writer comes along and writes a huge play at the national, and I go, why wasn't I asked to do I that? Mean, yeah, well, I mean, white writers. To be fair, you know, white writers have had the kind of hegemony for. 2,000 years. So, <laughs> so, so if there is a slight kind of contradiction in your yeah. position, it's a perfectly justifiable Thank one. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I should remember to quote that. <laughs> so Skeleton happened and, and, and was, was a kind of hit of the Soho Theatre Company. Um, and I always think when I'm talking about my, the story of my career... It kind of gets to the point where the first play happens and then it's just like, and then I did it again, and then I did it again, yeah. and then I did it again, and then I did it again. It's not stops being interesting. But what happened for you after Skeleton? What what 
how did that change things for you or did it change or yeah I think it did change because people start you know it's always the case the minute you have a play produced people sit up and notice you yeah and obviously in those days I was quite young so and the theatre likes the young don't yeah. they so suddenly yeah. you're like you know David Land is coming and finding you in the corner of a bar and mm. or um, National keep sort of phoning you up and so there were a lot of commissions that came my way and actually I was quite fortunate to be able to kind of you know so I did uh, Hobson's Choice at the Young Vic and I yeah. went with Richard Jones which was fantastic yes um, and yeah. Alts it was like I finally arrived in the theatre business I'm sitting here with I mean, two Richard Jones and Alts. men <laughs> Yeah. So that was that was very exciting. They're lovely and they're just. <laughs> and you've been waiting to sit in yeah. a theatre bar with gay bald men. <laughs> yes, gay bald men. I finally <laughs> arrived. <laughs> and uh, and Jenny Topper at the Hampstead and all these, mm. all these different places. Mm. And then I think what happens is that you get to a point where you 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 you're not flavour of the month anymore, and you have to kind of like start really working hard to get plays on. Yeah. And I think that's inevitable. I think that you can't just have like you know plays on all the time. Mm. There's inevitably there's going to be. So when you hear uh, artists directors saying, "Do send us your next play," you think, "Well, how am I supposed to send you my next play if Unless you don't you're commission, and, and commission me?" Yeah, I mean that's happened here as well. I get asked, "Do send us your next play?" Yeah, come on, Royal Court, commission yeah. me. Don't just, <laughs> yeah. don't just say send yeah. us your next play. Yeah, and so that that's when it kind of gets a bit scary as a sort of more mature writer. You yes. think you know all of a sudden the commissions dry yeah. up. Yeah, not necessarily dry up, but they're not. You know, you can see a, a whole you know swath of young a swarm yeah. of young <laughs> of younger I, writers I do think this I do think because uh, we although and we, we kind of started professionally at a very similar time mm. like not identical time but mm. similar time mm. within a few years of one yeah. another I think in those years between say 96 and 2003 yeah. there was a big expansion of commissioning yeah. which we kind of like assumed to be the norm and yeah. then after 2008 there was a big retraction yeah, absolutely. so you get this odd situation where there's a huge amount of playwriting groups yeah. for playwrights yeah. a huge amount of playwrights and all of a sudden the theatres are being struck by uh, cuts, governmental Absolutely, cuts. Absolutely. They yeah. can't commission as much yeah. as they want yeah. to. They can't produce as much as they want to. Yeah. So it's like the we've breathed out a huge amount yeah. of playwrights yeah. and then breathe back in again and there's no yeah. space for us all. There's too many playwrights. We need to kill a few off. We actually. should kill the young ones. Yeah, definitely. We can come up with a list of young playwrights <laughs> we can execute. If I do another series of podcasts, I'll concentrate exclusively on young playwrights and use it as a means of just to execute them. Slow, slow release of poison in the sound studio at the Royal But Court. having said, but has it been hard though? Well, I mean, actually, is it hard? Is it when when that happens? I think you have to get a bit more zen-like actually, and you become um, a bit more philosophical. And actually, you have to work harder. In a, in a sense, that's quite that's quite interesting. That's when you start working with companies that you would ne not necessarily even have looked at before. Mm. And that's when the really interesting work comes through, I think. So in a sense, you I feel... Give me an example of that. Well, I worked with this uh, strange circus company down in Brighton, uh, writing a play about Alzheimer's, and a woman in a what they call a cerso, which is like a, a hoop. And I think in 2003, I would have like, laughed at something like that. But because I hadn't had a play on for a couple of years, I thought... Well, maybe I should do this, and it'll yeah. be interesting. And it was fantastic. I so enjoyed it. I even tried to go on the circus, but I nearly <laughs> killed myself. 
and it toured all around the country and it went to India and it and it made me think in a different way mm. in terms of my writing so structuring it around a circus performer yeah. which I would never have done mm. otherwise and so there you know and and also working with regional theatres and working with young young people in offenders institutes yeah. because I just kept thinking I just need to keep writing it doesn't matter what it is as long as it's as long as I'm being true to myself and writing stuff I care about. Would and you have written even if the work was not produced at all ever? Would you continue to write? Uh, if it was not produced? Yeah. I Yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah I, I, I can't help myself. I've got these three daughters who, who are artists and it's quite interesting watching them. How old are your daughters, the, can I ask? That's yeah, so the oldest is 25. Right. And 25, 23 and the youngest 16. And what, what's really interesting watching them thinking is that they think through painting and drawing and right. making things yeah uh, whereas i think through writing even if it's just writing endless lists or, yeah. or letters to friends or you know um just anything or you suddenly i'll think i'll write a, something short sort of little sketch for no good reason at all and that's how i think and whereas they think through pictures as you can imagine I keep trying to get them to write, but they're not interested. So the gesture of writing becomes a gesture of crystallising yeah. idea to yeah. kind of have ownership of it, to make sense yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah. yeah. The, um, I'm interested, when I look at your biography, you, you, you've written for a huge amount of different theatres. Mm. Do they, are they, do you have different relationships with the theatres? Do they mean different things for you? Yes. What yeah, does definitely. the Royal Court mean? The Royal Court means my youth. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, when did you first come here? Oh, well, when I, when I first started coming to see plays. Right. Yeah, definitely. What was the first things you saw here? I can't remember. You know, now you're asking. I'm right, a okay. menopausal woman. No, no, don't. I can't don't. remember what happened three weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, like, tomorrow when All I right, remember. Right. <laughs> do you remember, do you remember, like... I remember coming to see Carol Churchill's brilliant. play about the clones... I can't remember who they were. A number. Going, a number, yeah. Yeah. That was one of the... And I think... I remember going to see Carol Churchill's Top Girl. But oh, I can't... Gosh, and yeah. I was just... And I think for me, that was the that was the moment where I thought, oh, gosh. Yeah. You know, women can write. Yeah. Because <laughs> up till that point, I felt like I hadn't seen many plays by women. And I think that that was very, very influential for me. Yeah. And I still go and see any any Carol Churchill play that comes on, I'll go and see. And Same Carol. I ca often can't understand them, but I still... <laughs> I still go and see them because I just think they're extraordinary. Were you they? reading a lot of plays at that time? Do you read a lot of plays in general? Um, I do now. Yeah. I didn't then. No, right. I just wrote yeah. and I go and see plays. And then somebody said to me, you really should try and read a play. Right. And then that's when I started reading. But I, because I teach now quite a lot, I, I do read more than I used to. In fact, um, we taught your Motortown on our BA course at Royal Holloway. Really? Yeah, last year it was very... <laughs> It was very what traumatic. Did, what did the poor children <laughs> oh, make? They loved it. They all loved it. They all loved it. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it was extraordinary, actually. So it was. So I, you know, literally had to analyse your play scene by scene by scene. <laughs> my God, that's really distressing. I remember. I'll never forget the rehearsals of that. Having having a week off rehearsals, coming back into rehearsals, yeah. and the scene that Danny Mays and Anya Herrera were rehearsing was the execution scene. Oh gosh. And sitting three feet away from yeah. the rehearsing, <laughs> thinking, Stevens, what have you done? What have you done? <laughs> <laughs> have you done? <laughs> but um, um, so th in terms of, it's it's your youth. You've yeah. written one and a seventh 
Yes. Plays yes. for here because you're well, one of the seven writers on Catch. That's right. Yeah. Um, five, wasn't it five? Was it five? Yeah. I thought. Okay. One I think of, one it of may, the fifth. May well have started with seven, but tell us five about the end. story of Sugar Mummies, uh, Sugar Mummies, and how that's if that's different to other work. What, that, that was re- different in that um, I had been commissioned by Ian to yeah. write a play, Ian Rickson to write a play here, and I hadn't delivered anything, and I, hadn't, I was so um, paralysed by the idea of what a royal court play was. And I why was, do you think that is? I don't know. I think I just thought you had to have defecation and fornication on stage. And I or torture really... and execution, yeah, like in Motortown. Like, yeah, yeah. If you'd read Motortown <laughs> before, you'd be fine. <laughs> and I did keep thinking, I don't know, how how do my plays... And I didn't even know what my plays were. Smack and, and so sodomy <laughs> is the... Uh, and blood and sperm, Graham, as Joe Hill Gibbons calls them. Graham yeah. very gently one day phoned me up and said, I've got, um, I'm going to send you an article. I wonder if you'd read it and see what you think. And it was a, an article by Julie Bindle in The Guardian about Negril um, in Jamaica and about this whole thing of you know white middle-aged women going to jamaica to have sex with young black men but also to pay for it Mm. and it was such a brilliantly written article because basically at the end of the article it mentioned the fact that she felt that slavery wasn't 100 miles away from where she was in negril that it was very very reminiscent of the days of slavery and i thought oh this is an interesting play so they actually sent me out to jamaica to to um to did research they, it. Did they really? They sent me to Jamaica. I mean, you're not going to say no, are you? So, That's um, amazing. I'm, next yeah. time they Royal Court commissioned me, I'm not setting another play in bloody Dagenham again then. <laughs> it was extraordinary. But they, but I, you know, obviously being, you know, mother of three and yeah. partner, they all said, can we come too? <laughs> did they come with so you? So they, they all paid for their fares and we, mm. all, we all literally slept in the same room in uh, Jamaica paid for by the the court and yeah. every day I would go down to the beach and thank goodness they were there because otherwise I would have been a sitting duck so the very very first day I was there on the beach with my youngest and this 18 year old came up to me and started chatting me up and I thought oh this is really good for the play and, and then eventually I couldn't stand it anymore and I just went you know what it's really sweet of you but I really think you need to go and chat with those girls over there who are wearing their bikinis and not much more your age yeah. and he just came right up close to me and went you know what the kitten you want the cat and I thought right okay Better put that in the play, yeah, and it was yeah, like yeah. that all the way through. This beautiful yeah. uh, lyrical way of speaking, you know, where you, you, if you, if that's what you were looking for as a woman, you'd be absolutely bowled over, you know. Um, and because the kids were there, eventually, they would kind of open up a bit more. And go, yeah, actually, I'm not 22. I'm 45. You know, did like, they really? Yeah. Did they? <laughs> and, yeah. And the whole thing about you know. Black men can go all night. Black men have got bigger dicks. You know, all that kind of, like, selling themselves, like, sort of... And I'd go, is it true? Is it true? Do you really? No, we don't really. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a bit of a myth, but, hey, they like the white people like it. So that was fascinating, all that. And so it was much easier to write the play having heard the dialect. Uh, It's fascinating to me hearing you say that because it goes back to something that recurs in in a few of your plays of um, there being a difference between the the, the myths and the truths in stories. Yeah. That there's a a presented surface, which is black men can go all night, black men are magnificently well hung. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the presentation of I don't want the kitten, I want the cat. Yeah, yeah. 
um, is just a facade. Yeah. And it's a facade to make money. Yeah, it's a, absolutely. A, an absolute transaction. Yeah. I mean, that's the difference with slavery, is in my understanding of slavery, there wasn't a great amount of money that <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> exchanged hands. But also, she only saw one side of it, I right. felt. Go on. Because I felt that there was a lot of mutual exploitation going yeah. on there. So, and that actually, even though, you know, to begin with, I was thinking of these awful women coming out here doing this and, you know, um, abusing these poor people men mm. but actually it wasn't that at all there was a lot of mutual exploitation going on the way that the men treated the women as well as just you know like a bank basically a credit card mm. um and these these women who were clearly quite damaged uh, who had you know lost loves or were not attractive at home and couldn't yeah. get couldn't get a boyfriend were desperate for love you know and these guys were really really rinsing them um and you know, they'd go home, then another... You'd li we'd literally see another lot come in. Mm. And they used to call them milk bottles. The Jamaican men used to call them milk bottles. Um, that they used to fill up, is what they... <laughs> wow. So, so, so when you first said that, I was slightly confused <laughs> by the analogy, and now I understand it. <laughs> Tanika Gupta. <laughs> I, I, I never thought... I should have known... <laughs> <laughs> the, Gosh, this is great. I've shocked Simon Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> Were you so the I mean my memory of that play and that production is that uh there was the, the it was striking for that balance that it never felt a judgmental play, it never felt a pejorative play. Mm. Uh, and was that something that was fundamental to you in the writing of it? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because actually at, at the end of the day I felt sympathy, empathy for both yeah. both, both genders. And um, and of course we had the wonderful Linda Bellingham in it yes. playing the ultimate sugar mummies. Yes. And try as she might, she couldn't be nasty. Yeah. <laughs> so in a sense, her 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 interpretation of the role meant that the ultimate sugar mummy wasn't actually that bad. Yeah. And a couple of times we tried to sort of push her a bit further, but she wouldn't go there. And in a sense, I think it was right. I think she was right because I thought that if you if she went too far to being the nasty exploiter, then it would. It would it would feel unbalanced actually. Mm. You wrote Catch with April Dangelis, so April Dangelis, Laura De Wade, yeah. Chloe Moss, yes, Stella Feely. Stella Feely. Yeah. What was that like? That was great fun. We just spent a whole year just sitting around gossiping every week for, <laughs> and then at the end of it, Ian said, "Where's the play?" And we went, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it. I mean, I guess that year was spent, you know, basically uh, talking about ideas, and we saw Motortown in the middle of it. And uh, I don't know if you notice that in Catch, mm. there's one male character in it, and he gets uh, killed in it. Oh, in, very good. Beaten up and tortured as and a, killed. As a dialogue, so a gesture of response to Motown. Yeah, I think it must yeah. have been. Yeah, why not? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, we're in I don't conversation think it was with one another. That's what playwrights do. I, I think. don't think it was deliberate. No, but well. it was. It was. It was that thing where we suddenly realised halfway through the year. Hang on, how come we're all women in this room? What's going on? Yeah, <laughs> and. Yeah. Uh, and how come we've written a play with all women in it? That's really strange. Huh. So it was mm. it was a provocation, actually. It was mm. quite interesting. I, I mean, I'm not sure if it worked myself, but in terms of the actual play. Yeah. But we enjoyed ourselves uh, very much working together. Yeah. But then I think what happened was when the director came on board at the end, it was really weird. It wasn't like a Royal Court play because you've got five writers. Yeah. You can't all be in the room at the same time. And the director hadn't worked. At the, I mean, this is Ian Rickson's partner. Yeah. hadn't worked at the yeah. Royal Court Polly... before. 
Teal. Thank you. And she, she, I think she found it must must have found it impossible working with us. Is there such a thing as a wall court play? Do you think? I think that I, I, when I mean when I say she uh, she hadn't worked on a wall court play, I mean I mean that she hadn't worked with writers in a room in a rehearsal room. I mean it's very unheard of here that you have a new play on that the writer isn't involved. Yeah. In every, you know. In the in the casting in the rehearsals, international theatre culture is mm. completely exceptional. Yeah, and that we expect as the norm. Yeah, but is freakish. Yeah, yeah. That the playwright should be involved in casting, yeah. involved in design, yeah. present in rehearsals. It just doesn't happen anywhere else. We're all powerful here. Yeah, that's why we like it. <laughs> so, but and and for you, that's what defines the royal court transaction is the presence of the playwright. Yeah, not yeah. just the royal court, but everywhere yeah. here that we write, where we write new plays mm. here in this country. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And it's not that you want to be there in rehearsal every day for four weeks, but because it does get a bit boring after a while, and you do. So generally, people step away, don't they? Yeah. And you think, oh my god, god, can you just get it right, and please. Actors are normally happy, and directors are normally happy for us to step away. Yeah. But absolutely. then, if that's not what defines a royal court play, because that's just the the conventions of mm. making British mm. theatre, then what is a royal court play for you, or is there no such thing? Well, I think that, I think that now I know what it is. It's yeah. just basically putting the writer in the centre of it. That's what it feels yeah. like to me. Um, much more so than any other theatre, that that the writer is absolutely the the main creator, and everybody basically works to make that play happen. In the last decade, is it fair to say that your main relationship with the Royal Court has been with the international department? Yeah, I don't really have a relationship with the Royal Court apart from I come and I watch plays. <laughs> yeah, but, but I'm still I'm, on the. I'm still you on. Work the... with Elise Dodgson. Yes. Who's the, the head of the, Elise, the yes, incredible yes. Lee Dodgson? Yeah, one of the great figures of British theatre yes. in the post-war generation. Yes, I mean, genuinely, yeah. objectively, I know we laugh because it's a silly thing to say, but actually, it's true. Yeah, she's one of yeah. the most important figures in post-war British theatre. She's run the international department for the last twenty years. She's seen through quite a lot of artistic directors. She's, hasn't she? she's seen, seen through a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> she's terrified them all. The, but what's it like working with her or for her? Tell us yeah. about the experience of just coming back from Chile yeah. or other places you've been to. Um, what do you get out of that as an I've artist? Only, I've only been to Cuba with her before, right, okay. and that was about ten years ago. But right. this, this time, this is a long time since then, and. Chile was fantastic, but what was interesting was watching Elise in action again, because I'd, I'd forgotten that she... What was really fascinating was how strong she was about talking about the writer being the centre. Mm. And, that, and that actually in those... In Chile, for example, we were working with uh, writers from Argentina and from um, Uruguay. Uruguay as yeah. well. And they all, they all came up with these amazing images and theatre devices and structures, yeah. close time, open space, all this stuff. Yeah. But they hadn't actually got a story. And they hadn't... They, they kept saying, oh, well, I will leave that to the actors to decide what their name is. And we were all going, what are you talking about? You've got to write it. It's your story. There's mm. no point leaving it to the actors because they'll mess it up. Yeah. And uh, that was what was so fascinating about hearing Elise talking about, A, the history of the Royal Court, which mm -hmm. I learnt a lot of stuff that I didn't know. Mm. And also, because she was there. Yeah. <laughs> but also yeah. the um, just the way that she was constantly, constantly talking about how writing a play was a political act, how you had to uh, be true to your own voice and every, you know, all this stuff that we kind of know, but was fascinating to hear it all being pushed in one week. And then, of course, the workshops that she's picked up from all these amazing writers like yeah. Sarah Kane that yeah. she worked, who she worked with. And, yeah. 
you know, Dave, uh, Simon, Stephen Jeffries, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, April De Angelis, to the point where I'd said to her at one point, are you going to do a Tanika Gupta workshop at any point? <laughs> she said, no, I'll leave that to you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, did you get anything back from that cultural exchange, though? Was it a provocation for you uh, to present the idea that you might not need to coin character names or define story as it was for them that they had to or or, or was that not the case uh, yeah I mean there's always an exchange when you teach yeah. isn't there and, there's also, and it also brings up all sorts of ideas in your own head apart from the fact you think I mustn't nick that story yeah. <laughs> and play. Yeah. but I think that you know the whole, whole stuff about coming up with character names I mean I, I, I would say there's no hard and fast rule to writing. Sure. Everyone writes their own play. Some people write with structure, without structure, whatever. But really what we would do was just giving them the tools yeah. and trying to inspire them to come up with good ideas. Is it possible to teach playwriting? Uh, I think it's possible to nurture it and to, to draw it out of people. Yeah. But if you can't write, you can't write. Mm. <laughs> if you haven't got that anecdotal... if you, I mean, there are a lot of people out there who can't tell a story... So you ask, an, you ask a player, what's your play about? And they'll go, oh, uh, yeah. think, oh, come on. You've been working on it for three years. You should be able to tell us what it is by now. Story's fundamental to mm. you, isn't it? Well, I mean, it is to the, me. Yeah, it's the yeah. unifying thing in everything that you've said has yes. been the impulse of telling a story yeah. to somebody else. From mm. your dad sitting in your mm. car to finish the story to teaching in Chile last week. Yeah, there you go, you wrap me up. The, there <laughs> you see. No, but I mean, it's really, it's really interesting, that, yeah. isn't it? it? I mean, yeah. it is fundamental to you yeah I guess it is you're yeah. a storyteller yeah I'm a storyteller but I, you do need good characters and a bit of action as well <laughs> can you imagine a play without a story uh, well yeah contemporary dance right <laughs> I, you go said... to see, I go to see contemporary dance I think well where's the story what's yeah. this about they're just wriggling around the stage in a very beautiful way but I don't get it so when you're making your plays is that fundamental to you Is are you, are you a planner uh, I, I thought I wasn't I thought I was one of those you know I just sit with a blank page, but I, I do plan, actually. Where do you, where, where do you write? I think it... Sorry, finish, yeah, finish I've your got question a, about planning. I've got a little office in the garden. So finish, so, finish your answer about planning. I do plan, yeah. I plan in my head more, and I write bits and pieces in a book. In a notebook? <laughs> yeah, in a what notebook. What kind of notebook is it? It's it's a moleskin notebook. Uh, an A4 one? Yes. or an, uh, No, 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 it's a, not A4, it's whatever One of the it's small A3. pocket, yeah, pocket yeah. ones. Yeah, so I constantly write in one of those, and then I realise that actually what I've been doing... I mean, it's all chaos, isn't it? It's all chaos. Yeah, what, what Who kind knows of, yeah. what it is. What kind of but, things would you write down? What was... uh, I would write characters or I'd write little, you know, anecdotes mm. or, um, you know, something that... I I quite often think about this whole thing about uh, Arthur Miller, you know, when he wrote down what he, what he wanted to write about, what he wrote down on a piece of paper, put it on his typewriter. I often think, what is it that I actually want to write about? Mm. And be quite specific so I want to write about say violence against women or I want to yeah. write about you know whatever so it's that thing of like trying to trying to crystallize thoughts which are so chaotic so when you say writing about that position is 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 the position of somebody who has something to say mm. do you go into your plays with a con with a an idea that there's something that you want to say or yeah. is there uncertainty there for you as well? Or? No, but you know what you know what it's like? You start off thinking, I'm going to write a play. I mean, for example, my play The Waiting Room, which was yeah. on at the National. Yeah. I thought I was writing about death. Right. About the experience of death and the afterlife and yeah. basically this experience of my own father's death and the weird things that happened around it. Mm. And uh, I was told I'd written a play about immigration. <laughs> 
Yeah. So it's that thing where you kind of go, really, is that what I wrote about? So, you know, you, you start off thinking you're writing one thing and then yeah. the experts come in and go, no, you've written this. When I say the experts, I'm talking about the director. And, and do you actors. value that relationship or or, or is it, does it make you uneasy? Well, the relationship with the director? Because I, I think the best thing about being a playwright as opposed to a novelist is that other people will have more control over or more understanding of what we write than we do. Oh, no, I mean, that's why I love theatre. It's collaborative, you yeah. know, ultimately. And the relationship with the director is really important. And the relationship with the actors is really important because they're great to go out and have a drink with as well. So well it's always, always a yeah, fun... No, it's, really it's always fun and games. Otherwise, you just sat on your own talking to yourself in and various you, voices. Which, which, <laughs> you, you, look, you look at the history of theatre in this country and the presence of the playwright in the pub with the actor yeah. is a really fundamental part of that. <laughs> You know, you read Ron Hutchinson talking about writing Rat in the Skull and yeah. drinking downstairs yeah. in the bar, which is now a super posh restaurant. Yeah. He yeah. said that all the actors and writers would go and drink in there in the same pub as it used to be a, a, a Squaddy's pub for the Chelsea mm, Barracks. Wow. And then he said at the end of the night, in the alleyway down there, down in the, outside the Royal Court, there would always be a fight between actors and playwrights and Squaddies. <laughs> and I kind of think, if I were to imagine a fight between my peers... <laughs> And a bunch of squaddies. It would be a very one-sided fight. Yeah, I know. All these metrosexual actors these days, they wouldn't know you what know, to do. <laughs> Lucy Preble might be all right, but... <laughs> yeah, I don't fancy my chances with Lucy Preble in a, the... in a fist fight. <laughs> the, um, um, so what's an average working day for you? Um, I, I generally try and write in the mornings because I lose concentration in the afternoons or there are a hundred million things to do like meetings and you go you've said you've got a, a shed in the back of I've your I've got a little spot. office in the back yeah, yeah. It's, it's really lovely actually it's surrounded you, by trees you still need to get the kids to school or do they no god no they're old now do you get up with them or get up <laughs> No, my kids, my, I've only got one left at home. Right. Yeah, so you see, you, I'm nearly free. So you, what time do you start work? Um, about half eight, nine. Right, yeah. and work until yeah. when? I don't know, whenever. Right. I, mean, I don't really write at night. Right. Yeah, I usually go see plays at night. Yeah. Or I, um, but you know, you know, these meetings, they take forever nowadays, don't they? These meetings, meetings. yeah. I mean, I just, there Going are weeks. Going to do a podcast interview that takes two and a half hours. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, that's what I'm no, saying. No, I love it. I'm feeling sorry for you. <laughs> but no, but it's that thing of, um, you know, when you have script meetings and, yeah. or Skype meetings or, yeah. or even that you have to go and travel to another country, yeah. you know, to go and have a meeting with someone. So yeah. it's very... Uh, and when, you're, when you manage to get those hours in your, in your office... Are you writing uh, dialogue? Are you writing notes? I'm writing plays, yeah. You start, yeah. Yeah, yeah. usually I've, you know, I've written all the notes in various cafes all over the country. Right. <laughs> so, so How when long I does sit it take down, you to write a play? Um, once, you've, once you've got the idea, it doesn't take that long, three, three weeks or something, right. but it's, it's the rewriting, isn't it? And it's getting to that first draft. Mm. But... Um, I, I've even started meditating nowadays before I, mean, I start yeah. writing. Only ten minutes because I can't I can't do more than that. But I find it really useful because um because especially as you get more responsibilities with kids and I've got an old mother who's always in hospital these days and you know, having to manage all these other kind of domestic duties, mm. you kind of have to really clear the clutter from your brain. Yeah. yeah. Martin Crimp takes his shoes off. Oh right, there you go. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> I really want. I really want to write a play. My next play would take my shoes off, because I never take. I wear my shoes around the house. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the gesture of taking my shoes off would become quite a kind of almost religious 
gesture. <laughs> How do you sit? I've got a chair. I've got a no, chair. No, I think it's really important. What posture do you do? You, what posture? You, how is your posture when you're writing? Probably I think this cr- is a, rubbish. A, a, Look, look yeah. at my posture no, now. <laughs> somebody asked me this in yeah. a, a few months ago, uh, or asked a group of writers what what how they physically behaved when they yeah. wrote, and it's yeah. really illuminating. It's always very hunched over. But the other thing I do is I'm a swimmer, so I have to go swimming every day. Great. Because otherwise I go Before mad. you write? No, I usually go in the middle of the day, actually. And do you write on computer or on... I write notebook? both. Yeah. Yeah. And write dialogue on a notebook? Yeah. 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 Well, how is it different? Is there a difference between the types of writing that the Yeah, I think on the produced? computer you end up just jiggling around with the same thing. You know, that rewriting, yeah. redrafting, rather than actually starting from the beginning and going, right, okay, I'm going to just do this freehand. I remember when I met Vikram Seth, he had written The Whole of a Suitable Boy by hand. Mm. You think how big that book is. It's extraordinary. And apparently the manuscript was about you know, eight foot high or something. The, uh, and Carol Churchill wrote Escaped Alone and Ali McDowell wrote X, Longhand, That's yeah. the Future. Longhand yeah. with our shoes off. <laughs> there <laughs> you go. That's really key. Um, I want to ask you just a couple of questions. I could talk to you all day. So uh, it's a bit of a... Anyway... I'm not going to. I want to ask you about what you learned from Shakespeare, being a dramaturg on the two Well, that's quite an interesting one because I wanted to change more of Shakespeare than I was allowed to. Mm. But, uh, in fact, I did. Mm. I did what I call... I bashed the bard. Um, but <laughs> I just thought some of it went on a bit too long. Yeah. But I, Midsummer Night's Dream I really love, and it's a play that I know quite well, and I, I think everybody knows it. It's what one of the easier... I just like the magic in it. I love right. the fact that it goes into these two different... Well, these mad, this mad, mad fairies, you know, that, um, that kind of get everything wrong. And it feels... I think, I guess, it feels very Indian to me as well. Mm. I kind of... I kind of... It resonated with me, that whole thing about going to the forest, you know, that's what they always do in the epic Indian dramas. They always go to the forest. In Tagore's plays. Yeah, they're always in the forest. Are they? I mean, I don't themselves know. Out. I'm yeah. I feel very embarrassed because I'm no, very ignorant of no, Don't be embarrassed. Yeah. Um, and, um, but not just in Tagore plays, but in the old class, you know, the, yeah. the, the Mahabharat and the yeah. Ramayana. Whenever they do anything wrong, they go off into the forest and magical things happen there. Mm. So when, for example, you know, the whole thing about Rama and yeah. Sita. So Sita's in the forest and yeah. he draws a, a thing around her and says, don't step out of this, otherwise you will be, you know, you will be in danger. And then the demon comes along dressed as a deer and tempts her out and then that's it she gets taken off to the island of Lanka mm. and so everybody that's when the whole epic starts so so those kind of stories being in the forest I just totally yeah. got it and uh, and of course in Midsummer Night's Dream they're fighting, Oberon and Titania are fighting over an Indian changeling so there's a whole passage in there where they're talking about why she's so attached to this Indian child yeah. So that was kind of I I just felt very I resonated with with it. But also Emma is you know she directed my play at the Royal Shakespeare Company, so yeah. we had a a good relationship. Yes. And we were both a bit like blundering around the text, going oh, I don't know what this means. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean I wooed thee with my sword? Can we cut that bit out? It's a bit. <laughs> 
Jackson. <laughs> and then you've got the sort of globe Shakespeare experts coming and going, no, you can't cut that bit out. No, you can't cut that bit out. Mm. But, but there was a lot of fun to be had with changing the sex of Helena to Helenus. Mm. Uh, so instead of maiden. So really all I was doing was messing around a little bit with the gender. Did you learn from him, though? Did you get, did you, were there moments where you thought, bloody hell, Shakespeare, you're pretty good, actually? His language is just incredible. I yeah. mean, it's no, and it, when you study it, well, when you're trying to study it to, to make it work for a modern play, yeah. you kind of go, I can't change any of this. Yeah. This is brilliant. I'm, yeah. So actually, I ended up just admiring him even more. Yeah. Um, but I also love the, the sort of freedom with which he just wanders around yes. so that you don't have... You know, we're always obsessed with, how does this person come into this room? Yeah. And how does he go out? And he doesn't worry about things. Which is like, what just you talked come. about it's in just... being freeing in radio drama yes, as well. Yeah. It's yeah. that notion. Cut two. Yeah. <laughs> I always think dramatic irony is something that he's astonishing on yeah. and that I've never used properly. Oh, well. When an audience know yeah. something that the characters don't know. Yeah. Which yeah. I think you can only get from planning. Yeah. I think from really knowing what you're going to do with a play. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I've got two more questions for you. Go on. Uh, so you're. Yeah. All right. I've got, I've got like twelve more. I'm just choosing two from the twelve, and the first of the first of the two that I'm going to choose is: Do you return to your plays? Do you read about your plays or think about them? Do you? And if so. Do you recognise either yourself in them or recurring themes? Um, I guess I do return to the plays because I think all playwrights have a recurring theme, don't they? Yeah. Um, I guess that. I guess that sometimes I think, oh no, I've done that before. Actually, just mm. bin it, and then it comes back you, again. And will you read them and check and say what? Did I, I don't do reread them. No, right. no, I don't reread because because then I want to rewrite them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, I kind of am reminded of things that I have written before. Or even lines sometimes come yeah. up and I think, hold on, did yeah, I do me, that line somewhere else? That's definitely true of me. Um, and, um, do you so, know what those lines are? Uh, no, I can't tell you now. Go on. I'm trying to think. I'm sure, I'm sure I did one the other day. I can't remember, I can't remember what it was either. Anyway, but what are the themes? What are the themes? The themes you... are probably usually, and it's all to do with my children, about trying to bring mixed race multiculturalism into the plays so yeah. that so that the plays are 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 di literally diverse so that there is always a mixed race person in there somewhere mm. I, d I don't know you know why i feel i have to do that because i have the children i don't need to put them in the play as well are you defined by your race to any degree uh well I, any of us defined by yeah. race i mean i think that what i find quite interesting is that when people I feel that I am defined by my race right. by other people. So, for example, going to the National and getting this long yeah. diatribe about diversity. Yeah. I didn't mention it was the National before, did I? Well, there you go. You kind of go, why, are you, telling me, why are you <laughs> telling me this? Yeah. Why have you spent half an hour telling me about all the Asian writers that you're working with? What? Yeah, I've that, never had a conversation with the National or any theatre about the amount of white writers they're just, working it, with, for extraordinary, example. extraordinary, isn't it? And it's actually... That's when I get quite cross and offended. Yeah. And that's when I think, actually, you only see me as an Asian writer. Yeah. You don't see me as a writer. And does it differ, but does it differ for you rather than for other people? Is it a positive thing? When you talk about your parents and the theatre that you were raised in, that just oh, yeah, seems inspiring to me. Well, I'm I'm perfectly... I mean, I did all my uh, battling in my 20s and I came through it, you know, right. so... So I feel like I'm quite sort of... Yeah, in, in our day, they always used to talk about being torn between two cultures... 
That was always the kind of phrase of the day. Yeah. You know, she doesn't know where she belongs, or she belongs here, or belongs there. <laughs> I was just like, I'm so, you know, I'm so over that. I got mm. so over that that actually I came out the other end and I feel fine. Mm. I feel fine about my race, but it, but I, what I still I worry about is that there is still not enough. Um, so, for example, reviews. Reviews of my plays mm. always have an al- analogy to curry. So mm. if they're good or bad, they are. There's a curry analogy in there. So for example, Skeleton got a, a review from Nick Curtis: "Not enough bones in a Rogan ghost," and uh, da da. And uh, uh, Michael Coveney in the Daily Mail wrote of the Empress at the RSC gave it a five star review, but then said Vindaloo Vicky does it again. So it's this sort wow. of like. I mean, I could write a PhD on the curry analogies that's really to my is, place. That's astonishing. So it's really. not about whether I'm comfortable with my race. I feel it's about them. They're not comfortable yeah. with my race. Or they, they term me as an Indian writer. Or they call me a British-born, Bengali, bilingual playwright rather than just a playwright. Yeah. Or, or they, you know, if there's music in it. So, for example, at the Globe, with the Midsummer Night's Dream, they kept calling it Bollywood. Yeah. I was thinking, it's not Bollywood. There's a bit of Indian sitar music in there, but that's not Bollywood. Yeah. So it's this sort of like generalisation of everything and yeah. then kind of going, oh, we know what this is. This so is this is from there. Yeah. Let's do a curry and a... Like all good plays, this play should have been baked in the tandoor oven more. <laughs> right, right. The, um... It just goes on and on. And, you know, when I don't get a curry analogy to my plays, I think... <laughs> Dominic Cavendish writing about sugar mummies. Why is this Asian woman writing about black people? Dominic Cavendish, who uh, who reviewed the streetcar named Desire yeah. in Manchester Royal Exchange last week, uh, saying uh, of uh, Sharon Duncan Brewster, yep. she's black. Maxine Peake's white. They're clearly not sisters. Go figure. It's one of the most racist reviews I've read. I'm sure he's not a racist person, no. but his writing is. So, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, he yeah. needs to sort that out. Sorry, yeah. that was a bit of a tangent. Um, yeah. I, when I look at your life and think about your career, London is as present as anything else. Yeah, oh yeah. You're a yeah. London writer more than you're an Asian writer, and yeah. you are as much yeah. as, or in a different way. Mm. Are you optimistic about London? Do you still like living in London? I love living in London, but I'm not optimistic about it. <laughs> I'm not optimistic about this country at the moment, with what with Brexit and everything. But one mustn't get all. Uh, you know, too, too Tell me about that contradiction. What do you love about well, it and what are you not optimistic about? Well, I'm very... I love London because I love the, you know, the fact you can go to play and theatre and cinema. I mean, mm. I've got loads of friends who live out in the country and they have a lovely life, but I always go, what do you do in the evenings here? Yeah. <laughs> what play do you go and see? I love the fact we've got all this choice. Um, How often are you at the theatre? About two or three times a week. Wow. Yeah. Wow. If I can. Yeah. If I can get a free ticket. It's always about... And you know, what are you nervous about or unsure about? I'm very worried about the fact that my kids can't live in London because they yeah. can't afford to. They've all got jobs and they well not not the sixteen year old but they can't mm. they can't afford and and actually it's becoming much more polarized where I live. You know, I re- I really noticed it the other day that you either have very very wealthy people living there, or you have council tenants and there's not there's it's the squeezing it, of the middle class. Yeah, and all, it's, it's it's an embarrassing thing being middle class. But if you look at the history of social geography, middle class people make cities exciting. Yeah, and they're it's, all it's leaving. Really yeah, they're they all, all leaving. leaving you know, I share that worry. You know, I've seen so many removal vans, people going off to live in, you know, Manchester or right. Wherever. Birmingham has become yeah. incredibly yeah. vibrant. Cardiff, I mean, Manchester would be great to go and live in. I wouldn't mind that. But just the rain. It's just the rain. rain. <laughs> it's just the rain. Who do you write for? Final question. Who do you write for? I write for an audience, definitely. I do you imagine write. the audience? 
No, I don't imagine them, but I always think, oh, how can I make this more interesting? How you know? But I also like writing humorous stuff, so I I do like a good gag or a good song, yeah, or a you know. So I write songs, lyrics as well. Yeah. And I also I'm terrible at jokes. Actually, I always like to put in a joke. I was <laughs> watching Roy Williams play the other day, and I was thinking he does it too. He actually puts a whole joke in there, which goes on forever. So um, so yeah. And why I why is love... that? What's that about? I don't know. When Sebastian Nubling came and directed in England and saw some theatre in England, he was, he was a German director, his director plays in mind. He was perplexed by the English need for a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, well, that, I'm sorry, but that says it all, really, why doesn't you, why it? Do you need, what's, the, what's this laugh need for? But, so what I does it say? I laugh a lot. Yeah. I laugh a lot. I spend a lot of time <laughs> laughing at people. I laugh in the house all the time. Yeah. And I like to go to the theatre and have a laugh. But I'm not saying that it should all be funny, funny comedy. No. But it's also about it's also about make them laugh, make them laugh, and then kick them in the guts. There is that as well. <laughs> I mean, there was a play I did called White Boy for yeah. the National Youth Theatre, Terrific. which which was Terrific. really, really nice banter between two kids, and then at the end one of them gets killed. And I remember watching the audience watching this young boy being ki- uh, stabbed on stage and being apt. I couldn't believe it. And I felt like... I felt like I'd been a bit cynical in that I had made them laugh and then mm. made them feel comfortable and then gone, look, this is what happens. You're Killed telling off them a story. <laughs> You're telling them a story. It's <laughs> yeah. good. Tanika Gupta, thank you very much. Thank indeed. you for having me. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, then make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or on iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed here, all of the plays discussed here, at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop or come into the bookshop uh, at the theatre in Sloan Square. Come to the theatre, come and see the plays. Follow us on Twitter at Royal Court. Follow me on Twitter at Stephen Simon and tune in next week to next week's Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. Uh, I'm Simon Stevens. Have a brilliant week. Thank you very much for listening. See you later. Ta-ra.